Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Bikes and Big Ideas on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Once again, we are broadcasting this episode from our home here in the Gunnison Valley of Colorado, and I would have to describe the riding right now as being perfect here in Gunnison and Crested Butte. Not gonna lie, it is perfect. Fall riding here. I don't know if I wanna say it's the best time of year to ride, but I love it, and you should come check it out. And speaking of bikes, we are going to be talking about a couple of them today, plus a rear shock and a pair of brakes. So the way we're gonna do this is I am going to first check in with our reviewer, Dylan Wood, then we're gonna turn to David Golay, and then last but not least, we're gonna talk with the Blister reviewer who still holds our highest reviewing the reviewer score, Eric Friesen. And so with that, let's first kick things off with Dylan Wood. Here we go. Well, Dylan Wood, welcome back to Bikes and Big Ideas. It's great to be here. <laughs> What's so <laughs> funny was, about I that? I don't know. I don't know. It's good. I don't know what. I love that. That was good. <laughs> well, it's great to have you back. You know, especially since I remember the first time we had you on and I didn't really know if you ever would be back on. And I think now it's been like, I don't know, three or four times. Look at you. Yeah, I guess I'm a, what do you call it? A regular now. Yeah, you're like a regular. You're like a regular. If Bikes and Big Ideas was a bar, you'd have like the end seat at the bar, that type of thing. That's good. I'm very honored to have the end seat at the <laughs> Bikes and Big Ideas bar. You are here to tell us about your time on the Trek Slash, I remember vividly you taking this bike from my garage, and I was sad, I have to admit. I knew we needed to get you time on this bike. I wasn't quite ready to part with it, and we really haven't talked about it too much since then, so I'm kind of kind of get this update along with everybody else you know, in real time here. What do you think of the Slash? Yeah, I'm really digging it. And sorry for kidnapping another one of your bikes, but I'm also not sorry because I've been having a lot of fun on it. Last generation of the Slash that came out in 2017, I wasn't a really big fan of. So I was excited to see that Trek came out with this new Slash and I've been enjoying my time on it. How much time did you get on the previous Slash? Previous Slash was about two or three rides. I think two of them were at Trestle as well. So a lot of downhill, not so much up. And yeah, the new one definitely takes things up a notch in terms of stability and just traction all around confidence for sure. And I think you were telling me earlier, you've got like six rides on the bike on the new Slash now. Yep, six rides in the new Slash, all in Gunny and CB, doing some favorite trails and some new trails. Okay, well, you gave us a little bit of the cliff notes already, but talk a little bit about some of the most standout characteristics of this bike for you so far. 
Yeah, so Trek coming out with this new slash, one of their main goals was to make it more of a capable enduro racer. And I've totally noticed that in terms of like steep, gnarly descending, I think it has a lot of stability and a lot of traction. I really like the way that the rear shock and the rear suspension has been acting in loose and rough sections. Credits go to the ABP and the new Super Deluxe through shaft rear shock on that. A lot of the riding I've been doing on it has actually been more of like flow trails as well, like bike parky, stuff like that. And a lot of the marketing that Trek has been doing, like their promotion videos and stuff, has honestly seemed more like they're showing, you know, Cade on these big jumps and like bike park riding, doing like flips and tricks and stuff. And yeah, I like the slash in the bike park. I think could be a, a really good bike for someone who visits a bike park once a week, once a month, and just wants a bike that is super fun on the jump trails and can, you know, get sideways in the air and pull for gaps and stuff. And is also looking to maybe do some enduro racing and throw it on those steeper tracks. And with that three position lever on the rear shock for the low compression, it really makes it easy to switch it up and change the way you want the rear suspension to act based on if you're doing a, a flowy trail, something in between or like steep gnar. And I really appreciate that about the bike. Well, we might as well talk more about this rear shock then. So have you actually been using the various settings much on that? I When I was riding it, I was pretty much just leaving it in the middle setting and found myself pretty happy there. But how much tinkering have you been doing? Yeah, so I, I really like this three-position lever. Other shocks like the Fox Float X2 have all sorts of different like high and low-speed compression. So I think someone who's looking for simplicity but still the ability to adjust based on the terrain i think this three position lever could be uh really great for them what i've been doing on rides like at hartman's where let's say you're going up and you're about to do becks gonna do like a flowy trail with a lot of corners and little gaps that you want to be pushing into and pulling for i just switch it right to the positive setting on the shock there you know rip down becks and enjoy that added low speed compression for pulling for gaps and pushing into berms like i said and then let's say, all right, like you're pedaling up to the notch now and you're about to go do some steep gnar, you know, hop off the bike for 10 seconds, go switch it into negative, And all of a sudden you got less low speed compression, more traction, more of an active rear shock in the back. I think that's a huge advantage for, you know, if your terrain is changing on you and you sort of have the, the time and the transitions between climbs to switch it there. I've been really enjoying that. Whereas on trails like today, I did waterfall and CV, which I'm not very familiar with. So I just put it right in that middle setting and just kind of went with it. And yeah, I was happy with it. I wouldn't have changed anything like for trails where I don't know it's coming, just put it right in the middle. And next time I'll be like, oh, maybe I want some less low speed compression here. or Maybe I want some more and then I can make the decision. But I think it's great for transitions when you know it's coming. So one of the things we talked about a couple episodes ago was kind of we're talking about some of our initial impressions of the slash, and that led to a conversation about geometry and sort of whether or not the geometry of the slash was 
progressive enough? Basically getting into that question of like, look, is the slackest, longest, lowest bike out there, does that equate to being like the best bike out there? Yeah. So the slash is Trek's longest travel, 29er. Obviously, if you're going to be doing enduro racing on a Trek, you're going to go for the slash. That being said, you know, this is also a bike coming from one of the biggest mountain bike manufacturers in the world. And people buying this bike aren't all going to be enduro racers, right? So for someone like myself who doesn't really have that much money to go for a bike that, you know, is like the fastest, most stable enduro racer and then have extra pocket change to go buy like some 130 millimeter more versatile trail bike. I really appreciate how this bike isn't totally radically like long and slack and, you know, everything that the keyboard warrior enduro racers want it to be. And it makes sense, right? Like this, if Trek made like a super long, super slack, like super sick enduro racer, like crazy progressive bike, you know, they're going to lose a lot of sales from like 80% of the people who are going to be looking at this bike, which are just average mountain bikers, you know? So I don't think it's anything crazy coming from Trek and honestly i think with their intention with this bike they kind of nailed it with the geometry so i actually am very curious to hear your thoughts about this bike as a climber what do you think i think it satisfies in terms of a big long point iron like I think anyone who's going to be buying this bike is not going to be going for KOMs on the way up. So I think it's basically adequate rear suspension. I think I agree with Luke and what he said in, in our first look that it's more of a great traction, maybe a little wallowy, but it also has a really effective climb switch to where if you're bouncing up and down and it's starting to bother you, yeah, go ahead, flip the switch. Whereas if you're on like super steep climb, lots of roots, rocks or whatever, just leave it unlocked and enjoy the extra traction and yeah, get up to get down. Basically couldn't ask for a better climber out of it basically. Yeah. I mean, I kind of thought it actually climbed quite well again, specifically for like what it is, you know, and I think that's the right way to judge this stuff, right? Like, I don't really care how it climbs compared to a uh, hundred millimeters of travel XC race bike, but in this category of bikes and for a bike this big, I was pleasantly surprised and would put it in the like above average Agree or disagree? Yeah, I would say maybe not above average, but I'll go with slightly above average. Okay. I think it has a good pedaling. Like, I don't feel like it's one of the bobbier bikes I've been on. For example, Rocky Mountain Instinct BC. I wasn't really a fan of how squishy that bike felt on the way up. Whereas this one feels a little firmer for pedaling. Traction is great. And... Yeah, like in in more flat sections, I think I I sort of more notice the the 
160 millimeters in the rear where if you're going in like a flat section and you're just standing up pedaling trying to keep speed kind of feels like you're on a pogo stick but yeah other than that slightly above average by the way we should say what's your height and weight yeah so i'm about 5'11, 160 in riding gear. So on the medium large bike we have, I'm basically just about at the top of their suggestion for the sizing. But looking at the geometry, it's about the same as my large mega tower and subsequently the large high tower bikes that I both really got along with in terms of geometry. And originally I was like, oh, I'm on like a medium large, like this is going to suck. Why didn't we get a large? But now, now I'm kind of like, hmm, I, I like this, this medium large and in like the tight corners and, you know, sort of slow speed gnar that we sometimes encounter in CB. I don't know if I would, if I would be inclined to go to the large and get, you know, 10, 10 millimeters or so more up front and reach yep that's interesting yeah i you know i'm so you're riding a size large mega tower which we're going to talk about next i my kind of everyday ride is a size large high tower and i and i'm 510 170 175 and like i have zero interest in dropping down to a medium on that high tower but I also felt really comfortable on that medium large slash. And yeah, at least for the riding around here, I have no interest in bumping up to a large or down to a medium. Yeah, I agree. Maybe if we're, you know, riding the bike park twice a week, like we hopefully will be next summer, maybe I'd want to be in a large then, but I like the medium large for now. Yeah, and you've got like a longer reach, I think. You're you're more monkeyish than I am, which is also <laughs> why my high tower still fits a little weird after you messed with it, but uh <laughs> I won't hold that against you too much just yet. But anyway, yeah, in case some of you are wondering and wondering about that question of do I drop down to a medium, do I bump up to the large? You got two takes on that medium large and two pretty happy folks. And yeah, I think if you're really just dh oriented dylan i could see why you might be tempted to bump up to the large i think i'm i just feel real comfortable on that ml yeah i agree if you're around 510 and you're debating between the medium large and the large i would just say okay well is this going to be more of like an all-rounder everyday bike for you go medium large whereas are you going to be enduro racing on it and riding bike park looking for a little more length, a little more stability, then I'd probably go large. And yet it's like, man, that ML, have you wanted more stability out of that bike yet on just what, uh, on a particular ride you've done so far? You know, honestly, I haven't spent much time on bikes that are much longer than the Slash. So I can't be like, oh, I wish I was on X bike now because I don't really know what that bike would be. But I could see how a couple a couple times a little more length wouldn't have hurt. Okay. Last question, big question. This is really the one I've been most interested in getting your take on, Slash versus the Mega Tower. Yeah, so when I first got on the Slash, it was pretty similar feeling to the Mega Tower, and I honestly didn't really 
look too much into the slashes geometry before I got on it, mostly because I didn't want any sort of preconceived bias going into it, how I feel it should ride, if that makes sense. But afterwards, I compared the geometry of the large mega tower and the medium large slash, and they're pretty similar. Basically, the slash is slightly longer in terms of wheelbase than the mega tower in short version. But the mega tower is a little bit steeper in the front by like less than a degree. And yeah, that's basically it is that the reach is about the same mega tower is a little steeper head to angle slash chain stay and mega tower chain stay are basically the same length in the mega towers short chain stay length. Sorry, this is getting a little confusing, but the mega tower in the long chain stay length is about 10 millimeters longer than the slash. So I was riding the mega tower in the long chain stay setting. And when I first got on the slash, I think the first thing I noticed was, oh, it's a little easier to manual, a little easier to flick around, check the geometry. And yeah, I'm pretty sure the chain stay length was to blame for that. But other than that, I think they have really similar feeling in terms of just handling and geometry out on the trail, which is not a bad thing at all because I really like the way the mega tower handles and how it fits me. And so when I hopped on the slash, it was a really familiar ride feel. And I was really happy with that. It didn't really take much getting used to sort of like, like Luke said too. And even more so for me, because I've been since spent so much time on the mega tower this summer. I think the main differences I've noticed between the two slash is a little bit lighter, which is good. Feels good climbing, feels even better in the air. Mega tower, like I said, I've been running it in the long chainstay setting. And with the mega tower in the long chainstay setting, it's about the same wheelbase as the slash. The only difference here is mega tower is a little longer in the rear so i feel like the mega tower has slightly slightly more weight bias on the front wheel in that long setting and basically what that converts out to on the trail is just a little bit more front wheel traction a little bit more of a balanced ride especially for me because i tend to ride a little bit more over the back of the bike overall i like both of them and i'm glad the slash isn't too different because i like what santa cruz did with the mega tower okay wait so before i let you go then give me the like in sum where do you think you would give the nod to the mega tower and where do you think you would give the nod to the slash so i think this goes back to intended use again you know slash is a pretty mainstream bike coming from a big mainstream company and i think it is a little bit better of an all-arounder whereas if there's a enduro race coming up this weekend and i got the slash and the mega tower i think i'm going mega tower just because yeah it's intended for that enduro racing and santa cruz didn't really design it too much to be like that big trail bike sort of like trek is calling the slash and I think you can feel that mostly in the suspension, whereas Eric and I both noticed on the Mega Tower, it's pretty progressive and pretty harsh. I liked Eric's like Porsche analogy to it, 
And whereas the slash to me feels a little bit more forgiving, a little bit more plush, especially in that negative setting and the low speed compression on the shock. So yeah, mega tower, more race oriented slash more of an all rounder. Okay. Well, pretty good. I think you have kept your seat at the end of the bar. I don't think we're going to, I don't think we're going to kick you out or make you move to like a table in the corner. So I think you did all right here. Well, that's good. I'll drink to that. (laughs) All right, man. Well, hey, appreciate you sharing the thoughts. And I know you're going to keep getting some more time on this. And we're going to get Eric Friesen some time on the Slash as well. And hopefully we'll get some words by you and Eric on the website pretty soon. Yeah, sounds good. I can't wait to see what Eric thinks of it. I know. And thanks for the chat. Yeah, man. You too. We'll talk to you soon. See ya. All right, David Golay, what is it that you've been reviewing lately? Yeah, I got a couple things to talk about. First up, we'll talk about the EXT Storia rear shock. From those who aren't familiar with them, EXT are an Italian company that have a pretty long track record making suspension for uh, mostly motorsport applications. They've done a lot in Formula One and high-level rally racing and a variety of other things in that nature, in that vein. Sort of more recently, they started making some mountain bike products as well and been on their Storia rear shock, which is kind of their coil shock meant for longer travel enduro bikes and have been super impressed with it. The EXT does all of the shocks made to order. So they're custom valved for the rider weight and bike that they're going on to. And so rather than being a strictly off the shelf thing, you get in touch with them, fill out a form describing your riding preferences and weight and the bikes you're putting it on and arrange things like that. And then also have a quick phone call with a technician to talk through what you've put into the form, make sure it all makes sense and get them set up to valve the shock for what you are going to do with it. And in my case, the uh, initial valving of it was a little bit off, particularly in terms of the rebound tune. It was just basically too slow for the bike setup I have. It's going on my Nikolai G16. and But then sent it back to EXT. They revalved the rebound shim stack and the reworked version of it has been incredibly impressive. It's a fairly conventional monotube shock with high and low speed compression adjusters and a rebound adjustment. So nothing too wildly out of the ordinary, but just a really phenomenally good application of that kind of relatively normal layout. And I think the best way I can describe it is that it feels like a really remarkably well, heavily damped and well-controlled shock. That's just kind of allows you to run firmer compression damping settings and have the whole thing be more controlled without it being harsh and spiky at the same time. And so it's been really quite impressive in terms of how well it's just been controlled and composed and kind of disappears in the way that you just sort of aren't noticing it doing anything weird or unexpected or harsh, but it works really remarkably well. Been very impressed. First of all, David, I don't know if you know this, but 
in the Formula One whip that I you know keep in my garage. I actually have uh-huh. EXT shocks on that thing, and I've got to say they 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 work fantastically well. That's good. Have you been just running that up to the mountain for ski days? <laughs> yeah. You have your ski rack on the back of it, yeah. like strapped onto the spoiler or something. Yeah, Sweet. that's how I roll. Second comment, I guess I'm a little surprised to hear your enthusiasm given that you've ridden your fair share of really nice shocks. So I don't know. I'm slightly surprised. Are you surprised that I'm surprised? A little bit. I think what was sort of interesting with my testing of the shock was that I put it on, had the initial foibles with the rebound tune, but then after that got sorted out, I was riding it and just thought that it felt great. The bike was working well. Everything felt excellent, but it wasn't quite obvious how standout it was until I took it off and put some of the other shocks that I've run on the bike in the past back on as kind of a baseline to re kind of calibrate my brain for what the other stuff felt like. And the, the story was just kind of disappearing into the background because it was just doing everything well and I didn't notice what was happening but the bike felt good and then you had put the, some other stuff back on and start noticing the little spots around the edge where occasionally feels a little spiky here or rebounds and not quite as controlled here and little little things like that where going back to the shocks I'd been running previously was what really made it obvious how well that story was working Okay, well, all of that sounds remarkably impressive. So I guess I want to know what segment of the biking population should sort of immediately go check this thing out and who maybe shouldn't worry about this shock, unless you're claiming like literally every bike mountain bike rider in the world should be on this Storia. Thoughts? I don't think it's strictly the right shock for everyone in the world. I, I think probably the right way to look at it is that, well, first off, it's a coil shock. It's not particularly light, and it is definitely something that makes sense on at least kind of medium to longer travel bikes that have a pretty heavily descending-oriented focus to them. And then the second thing I would say is that the people who are going to see the most benefit out of it are people who have some time on some other pretty good suspension have a clear idea of what they do and do not want their suspension to be doing and can articulate that well because it's a custom-tuned shock that is getting set up for a specific bike and a specific application. The adjustment range isn't necessarily super huge on a lot of the adjusters. A lot of what you are doing and getting it set up is being able to tell EXT, I want my shock to do X, Y, and Z. I want it like this. And having a clear idea of what you want out of it, obviously realistic expectations of what is possible is good there. And being able to explain that clearly to them is going to get you the best results. Pretty good answer. Okay. Let's leave it at that for now. And again, people can go to the Blister website, read your full written review of the story uh go nerd out even more but with that let's move on to breaks what do you want to tell us about breaks in our 2020 coming decade predictions episode 
at the beginning of the year, Noah Bodman and I both brought up breaks as an area we saw for some considerable improvement. And one of the things that we both called out is that going back quite a while, there have been a good number of breaks brought to market that worked pretty well out of the box, but a lot of them have had some noteworthy difficulties with consistency and reliability, basically. And I've been spending a bunch of time on the Hayes Dominion A4s, which are their four-piston gravity-oriented brake meant to compete with stuff like Shimano Saints and SRAM codes, etc., and have been very impressed with them. The outright power is very good, probably not quite up to Saints, but not far off either. Saints kind of being the high watermark of stuff that I've written in that regard. But where they're really winning is that they've just been over the whole summer, I've been spending a lot of time on them and have been just absolutely dead consistent and reliable. Whereas I've really liked a lot of Shimano's four piston brakes when they're new and working well, but they have a fairly lengthy documented history of having issues with the bite point wandering where you'll go to grab a handful of brakes sometimes and the spot at which the brake engages is just randomly different. And I'm certainly not the first person to note this. It's been going on for some time and has been a real thorn in their side. And that's continued to be an issue. The haze, I, one of the things that's sort of setting them apart is that you can kind of make a spectrum of how the bite point feels on brakes where you have more linear ramp up where as you start to squeeze the brake, the firmness increases kind of gradually and slowly. And I'd say that um, codes, for example, are a pretty good example of a brake that is kind of more on the linear end of things. Whereas you have the more Shimano Saint or XT4 piston sort of feel where the ramp up is much more progressive. They're very light through the beginning part of the stroke and then hit a firm bite point and become much stiffer very quickly. I personally happen to prefer that kind of more progressive ramp. Certainly that's a very subjective personal preference sort of thing, but I land on that side of it. And the Hayes are also very much in that vein, similar to Saints, XT and XTR4 pistons, et cetera. So the lever feels great. They've been dead consistent. Power's good. And they've just been working really well all summer. I haven't had to touch them. And I'm really happy with them. I do want to mess around a little bit more with their different brake pad compounds. I've mostly been running the centered metallic ones, which work well, but have been kind of noisy, especially when you get them a bit hot. I do want to experiment with the organic pads a bit more and just spend a little more time on them to really continue to just hammer on them and see if any of the kind of inconsistency issues crop up because I just think that's a big thing with testing brakes. It's easy to get on them for a handful of rides and say, oh, this feels pretty good. This is working well. But that's been a big point of differentiation between a lot of stuff on the market. And so just being able to spend a lot of time on them and really see how they hold up is pretty key. Sounds like we have 
different values when it comes to brakes. I really dislike consistent and reliable braking <laughs> because I feel like it just takes a lot of the thrill away. <laughs> and so I, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to make my rides more boring like you are. I, guess. I have a set of like two year old saints sitting on my workbench here that I can send you that hmm. they have some really excellent <laughs> random bite point variation that'll keep you on your toes. See, perfect. This sounds, that sounds good. It's also why I really just find stopping power to be overrated, you know, cause a lot of times when I'm rolling into something kind of gnarly and my instinct is to just way over break and stop. If I don't have stopping power, it actually just forces me to keep rolling and not kill all my momentum. So, you know, in a lot of instances, that's a, that's a plus David. Oh, okay. I, I hadn't really considered that perspective too much, but I can see where you're coming from. Does that, uh, what 2003 or whatever it is <laughs> epic that you have kicking around hq is that is that v breaks i don't yeah, remember it's v breaks what yep. what era that is okay uh so why are you not still riding that then well you know it's uh because that bike is terrifying to be honest there's some room between that utterly terrifying bike and then you know bikes with really great brakes that are consistent and reliable and have braking power for days you know so i'm looking for that middle ground just to just to keep things spicy so sounds like sounds like i need to review the haze next and i might have a you know much more negative opinion of these things <laughs> okay it sounds like what we need to do is figure out a way to get you a modern bike with v-brakes on it <laughs> <laughs> just be best of both worlds for you it'd be perfect mm -hmm. Okay, I don't, I don't like, I don't like the turn this conversation has taken. But uh, maybe I'm talking a bigger game than I'm, than I'm really willing to to commit to, especially if we're videotaping this and sending me down gnarly stuff. But <laughs> anyway, each rider has different things they value. So you know, you might be somebody who likes consistency, reliability, and a lot of stopping power in their brakes. But that's just you. That's just you. And let's let's keep in mind all the other riders out there and all of their preferences too. And I think we've done that. I think my work here is done. So everybody, that's the Hayes Dominion. Either a really good break or kind of terrible, depending on what you value. <laughs> anyway, um, on that note, yeah, it's late. I should probably just go to bed. Um, anything else about the Haze that we didn't touch on here? We'll have the full review of those up on the site in a bit. They do have a couple other neat touches. They One of the more interesting features is that they've got two bleed ports on the caliper so that you can draw air out of both sides of the caliper without having to kind of work it through the fairly small passage between the two. And they've got a pretty clever little system whereby there are a pair of set screws on the sides of the brake mount tabs where it pulls up to the frame or fork so that you can use those to align the caliper neatly because those set screws push against the bolts that mount the brake to the adapter or frame or caliper or fork rather, whatever it may be. And basically what you do is you can just push the caliper all the way inboard and then use those two screws to push the two ends of the caliper out independently and get it aligned really neatly and easily without having to do the normal shenanigans of uh kind of eyeballing it and then clamping the brake and hoping it 
the pads are all moving evenly and getting it really lined up just very neatly. Mm. It's clever. Clever. Well, David Golay, thank you for sharing the knowledge and we'll talk to you again real soon. Sounds good. Talk to you soon. All right, Eric Friesen, it's your turn. But I want to actually start with a bit of a, I don't know, update slash confession. Those people who listened to your episode of Reviewing the Reviewer, which is over on our Gear 30 podcast, they might remember when I think I asked you, like, I don't know, like, what's the best thing you've ever watched ever? Your answer was <laughs> Cowboy Bebop, which I'd never heard of. And we've had some months of back and forth about this. And I just want to let you know that I finally agreed. Like, all right, I'm going to try to watch this thing that Eric describes as like the greatest thing he's ever seen. And last night, because I knew we were going to be talking today, I went to finally sit down and watch like the first episode or two. And my stupid detachable external hard drive thing is not compatible with my current laptop. so i know you've been upset with me in the past that i have not yet gotten around to this i really tried last night and i ordered an adapter which should be here in a couple days so that for you i can watch this masterpiece cowboy bebop i just wanted to start there i i appreciate you acknowledging this i think the viewer or the uh the listener should know that you have a literal server bank of av equipment in your basement oh uh, yeah which i'm quite sure includes a dvd player but uh i didn't even know, think about that to be honest <laughs> whatever whatever excuses you want to make these are <laughs> also i think my actual answer was the matrix was the my favorite thing that i've ever watched okay. but i wouldn't argue that cowboy bebop is also equally important and so. the last time that we were hanging out you were like we're we're turning this on just so you have seen some of it and it was pretty great and i'm like cool i will give me the however many dvds i will i will try to you know find time to watch this you, i think you are right though i probably do have like a dvd player in my place it didn't occur to me last night and i did <laughs> i did order an adapter so anyway anyway apologies everybody that you had to listen to that but you should i don't know go check out cowboy bebop chances are you'll probably finish the series before well maybe before i start it but we'll see okay with that out of the way we are here to talk to you about a bike that you have been spending some time on from banshee why don't we get started by having you tell us a little bit about this company banshee sure Banshee's been around for quite a while and in just kind of watching them from afar and having also owned a couple of their bikes in years past, they seem to do a pretty good job of being generally on the forefront of design trends. For example, the Phantom, the V3 version that I'm riding and we'll be reviewing shortly came out in 2015. And even at that time, it was long and low and slack for a short travel 29er. And they would say it's the original down country bike, but it definitely it was something that was pretty ahead of its time at that point. They make aluminum frames. They don't mess around with carbon they tend to skew to the side of giving the rider quite a bit of adjustability 
with uh, how they set up their bikes, whether that's like geo or bottom bracket height, stuff like that, which is cool. And in general, they're kind of, they're, I don't want to call them overbuilt, but they're definitely, you know, they're not bikes that you're trying to build if you're trying to build the lightest thing on the hill, but it's, it's a bike that you would be drawn to if you're somebody that enjoys usually getting pretty aggressive, you know, in either direction, but probably skewing towards going down. Would you describe yourself as somebody who enjoys getting pretty aggressive? And going down. Okay. I think that's pretty good. Do we need to say anything more specifically about the Phantom V3? Uh, it's a 115 millimeter travel bike. It comes with a DPX2, which kind of tells you a little bit about its intentions and how it's supposed to be used. It's uh, It will accept up to a... Uh, 2629 er tire or a 28275 tire if you're weird like that. It now uses uh Banshee's KS2 linkage, which is something they're using across their like uh all mountain and enduro sort of line of bikes. And in general, I think it does a pretty darn good job. The frame comes in at a stated 7.8 pounds with a shock, and they would classify it as a, a trail or an all-mountain bike specifically a, a down country short travel 29er is the language that they use. So let's talk about your impressions so far. Where have you been riding this thing the most? Like what kind of trails? Really all over. I mean, for uh, about four weeks now, it's been one of kind of two main bikes that I've been on. Um, this time of year with days getting shorter, I'll definitely start riding at uh, Hartman Rocks Recreation Area, which I live right by, which is terrain that looks more like uh, the topography of a heartbeat than Crested Butte, where it's like a big climb followed by a big descent. But I haven't shied away from taking it on anything that I've ridden. I haven't um, brought it into like the bike park at Crested Butte or some of the like very free ridey trails that are up in, in the north end of the valley. I don't think that would really be very fair to a, a bike with the intent that it has. Basically, I've been trying to go out and crush as many like big after work loops as I can, sort of using the fact that I'm on like a short travel sort of speedier bike as an impetus to push myself that way for the last couple of weeks. Yep. So it's been fun. Very nice summary of where you've been riding. So now, what do you think? I'm a fan. I mean, I kind of, I came in assuming that I would be a fan. Like I mentioned, I've owned a couple of Banshees in the past. I was definitely a big fan of the Spitfire and I had the first and the second generation of that bike. I just like Banshee's design ethos. I think it works well for me. I like the KS2 suspension. Like I, I think it works well and it, it's for me, it's pretty indistinguishable from other like dual short link style bikes, which is what I generally tend to gravitate towards in my riding. The Phantom, it's got 115 millimeters of travel in the rear, and mine actually comes in with a 140 millimeter fork up front. So it's, it's kind of over forked, which I'm generally a fan of as well. As far as a bike that's fun to ride, it's definitely got a build that I would say the internet built. And what I mean by that is it's for the, for the bike, it's very overbuilt. Like it's double down casing tires, code brakes. It's got a all mountain like carbon wheel set, which is sweet on those like bigger, longer sustained descents. But uh, at like Hartman's and places like that, 
it would be nice to have something that's built with a little bit more efficiency in mind. Probably we're a little bit ahead of ourselves now, but so far the only thing that I haven't really been enjoying is uh, it comes with a Shimano GX drivetrain, which I find that on a bike where if you slap this on like a big enduro rig and I was going to be riding that in CB and I would pretty much put it into my like 50 tooth and ride to the top of something and then ride down. It doesn't really impact me too much, but on a bike like the Phantom where a lot of the time you're really trying to like get up and out of the saddle and hammer and sprint and like maximize speed everywhere, like both up and down. I find that I'm moving through the gears quite a bit more often than I would on other styles of bikes. So this is a place where a drivetrain would be something that I would be more inclined to splurge on over perhaps other styles of bikes where it just doesn't come into play quite so much. But overall, yeah, I've been impressed. It does a great job. I really, I like the KS2 suspension in the rear. I think it does a good job. It's got a MRP ribbon fork up front, which does a really good job it's it with the uh the air chamber system that they use as well as their ramp control it makes it really easy to dial in a fork that can handle some bigger impacts while still being pretty supple for something that doesn't have you know 160 or 170 millimeters of travel which is nice and uh yeah overall i'm I'm definitely leaving impressed there's a couple little quirks and weird things that i would change if it was a personal build but uh, I'm still a, a fan of Banshee in general, for sure. Okay, so here's maybe a tough question. Sure. Is this bike more niche than it sounds like it is, or actually a sort of better kind of all-rounder than that? Like, I'm trying to wrap my head around, like, okay, so... It's a 115, it's kind of an overbiked 115. So why not just go to a 130 or 140? Like, what am I really gaining by giving mm-hmm. up, right? Some of the travel in the back. It is a fairly niche bike, but I think that comes down to a little bit more of the way the one I'm riding is built than the fact that it's a 115 bike. And as well as like, what banshee represents i mean banshee is a small company like the the owners are like pretty visible and pretty accessible they only do aluminum bikes if you're riding a banshee you're probably someone who's a little bit more keyed into like bc bike culture you love the idea of aluminum frames you like progressive geometry you like kind of cheering for and supporting the little guy if you're someone who wants to ride a 115 mil sort of down country trail rocket, you know, you might choose something that's a carbon frame with a lighter build and perhaps, you know, some different choices in component spec to kind of maximize your performance. But from the folks that I've seen riding Banshees and, you know, just my own experiences with the brand, I think some of what's going to draw you to Banshee bikes in general and the Phantom is the fact that it's a little bit different. It's very grassroots. It's very like homegrown and you are going to feel really good about giving them your money at the end of the day, as well as, you know, getting a good product that excels in a lot of areas, but maybe isn't like 
the sharpest tool for the specific job in terms of taking every performance metric to, you know, 110%. Well, hey, I think that's a pretty good overview. People can stay tuned for your full review where it sounds like you're going to get into a bit more detail and specifics about different aspects of the the build kit. But uh, I think this is pretty good. Good, good check-in, good catch-up. I'm looking forward to getting stuff written up here pretty shortly and looking to drop that pretty soon. And I think it'll be an interesting read for folks. It's It's got a lot of cool stuff going on. Well, cool. Well, hey, man, appreciate it. Maybe I'll go see if I have a working DVD in the house, rock out to some Cowboy Bebop at some point. But, uh, you know, I'll, I'll let you know. I'll keep you posted. Sick jazz soundtrack. <laughs> All right, man. I'll talk to you later. See ya. Well, that's it for this edition of Bikes and Big Ideas. Thanks to Dylan and David and Eric for the conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. You can catch us tomorrow over on our Gear 30 episode and Blister Podcast on Monday and Off the Couch on Tuesday. And then we'll catch you right back here next Thursday on Bikes and Big Ideas. Take care, everybody.